Andre and Tamika set out to hire a private investigator to uncover anything and everything they could. This new information provided by Jamel, coupled with Andre's access to the law library and learning the law, made him realize there may be a way out. They were able to locate um, my surgeon who did the miraculous job he did. I smile and I laugh because I'm amazed by what he said at the hearing itself on how it would have been totally impossible for me to commit this crime. It should also be known that the individuals who were shot said that the culprit was running fast behind them. Ultimately, the final ground on which Andre wins his case is important. You know, we really need to win on actual innocence or newly discovered evidence so that Andre could be eligible for compensation under New York state law. Otherwise, he would not be eligible for that. You're listening to Speaking of Crime with your hosts, Gia and John. We hired an individual from SPC Investigations named Jerry. And Jerry went and met with Jamel and Jamel gave him his version of exactly what happened on January the 11th, 1999, four days prior to these two individuals being shot. What happened was Bonkers gave Goldie, as Jamel Graham has called his nickname, weed to sell. Goldie had been in the, um, he was into larceny and grand auto theft. So he had been stealing cars and stealing things. And he had been tired of continuously getting arrested for that. So he was looking for a new trade. And he asked Shonda, listen, what's up? Could I hustle for you? So Shonda said, yeah, what's up? Come up to my house. And what I tell you is all through live testimony of Jamel Graham, AKA Goldie. He goes to Shonda's house and Bonkers gives him, and I'll use it interchangeably as I do, Shonda and Bonkers is the same person. Bonkers gives him a pack of marijuana because he had been selling marijuana and says, listen, I want you to go up the avenue on White Plains in Britain and sell. Let them know you're selling for me. So he goes up there, he thinking he has the authority to sell under Bonkers' authority, and he goes up there and he's making a couple sales, and immediately he gets approached by three Jamaicans. These Jamaicans ask him, because he's American, what are you doing up here? Who told you you could come up here? He said, listen, you know, I was told by Bonkers I could come up here, I'm selling for Bonkers. He said, listen, you can't sell on this block for anybody, we don't care who you're selling for and they started to beat him down. They beat him all the way down to the ground to the point where he was able to escape and he ran to Bonkers' house and told Bonkers about it. Bonkers came down with a weapon without brandishing the weapon. It was concealed and he started tucking it and he saw the movement in his waist and they started to proceed back up towards the area that he was assaulted. At that time, at, before they got to the front I should say before they got to the street corner itself, the other individuals started shooting at Shonda Tyrell. When they started shooting at him, 
he immediately engaged back in a shootout with them. Goldie ran. Immediately he ran. He didn't, he was the only one in this gunfire without a gun. And he ran for the hills. They immediately were shooting back and forth and Goldie heard Shonda say, I'm gonna get those guys as they both ran off. Coming into the crime itself, prior to just two days, I wanna say, after the shootout, one of the complaining witnesses, O'Neill Virgo, gets caught with an automatic weapon. The same automatic weapon that was used in the crossfire on January the 11th. He got caught with that weapon on January the 13th. 1999. Two days after that, he was shot down. Through investigations, through Oscar's investigation, we understood that the weapon that was used on the 13th by O'Neill Virgo was the same weapon that was used on January the 11th. So we understood that two weapons were used, but one of them were caught by the 49th precinct. And in being caught by the 49th precinct, it meant that they had ballistics reports. However, we still didn't know the assailant from the 15th. Who was the assailant from the 15th that shot at, who shot these individuals, number one? And number two, did the same shooter engage in this shootout on the 11th? Through a thorough investigation, Oscar did a foil request, and the Bronx District Attorney gave him a stack of DD-5s. And those DD-5s in them had more police reports indicating that ballistics reports matched from the 15th and the 11th. And now we understood that the same shooter that shot on the 11th shot on the 15th. So to clarify it, Shonda Tyrell shot at O'Neill Virgo on the 11th, and O'Neill Virgo shot back at Shonda Tyrell on the 11th. O'Neill Virgo was caught with a gun because he didn't want to get caught without a gun if Shonda Tyrell was to run up on him on the 13th, two days after that. He was caught with his gun. On the 15th, Shonda Tyrell used the same gun that he shot at O'Neill Virgo with on the 11th to go and shoot O'Neill Virgo and paralyzed Sean Nicholson on the 15th. Those ballistics reports matched as well. And we were able to make this connection through the four requests that was received by Oscar Michelin and through the thorough investigation that they, they did. And that's how we came into even more evidence of my innocence. Did you think that Shonda looked like you? Or was it just other people who thought so? No, I do. After seeing photos of him, he looks identical to me. Yeah, it's like a splitting image. You know, it's almost eerie to think that it's such a splitting image that he took my entire life, you know? They thought that he was Andre Brown. Was he aware that you were serving time for his crime? I'm not sure. Um, it's a possibility that he eventually found out. Would he have ever came in and say, I'm the one who shot these guys? No, it's improbable. But it is possible to think that he might have known. I mean, everybody else on the street knew that Andre took this rap here and he's in jail doing a 40 year sentence. So why wouldn't he know? 
Andre talked about how much he hates the scar on his leg, and he showed it to me. It's very large. The scar on his right leg measures 10 inches in length by 4 inches in width, and on the side of the calf, it's 9 inches long. The wound is on both sides of his leg at the shin and side calf. The damage was so severe that it created compartment syndrome, which is a swelling of the muscle that can cause a loss of a limb. Even with all that, Andre still recognizes that it was a blessing in disguise. But it's a reminder of who I am today and the triumph that I've overcome. It's part of my life testimony. That scar itself is what enabled me today to be a free man. It helped me to understand that life's tragedies can also become a life blessing. And that blessing itself is Oscar Michelin and Jeffrey Deskovich on how they tackled this case and showed Judge Lewis why I couldn't possibly run to commit this crime. Andre went on to explain how this crime actually took place. One individual was shot on White Plains Road, a train stop, and the perpetrator ran uh, a very long distance. White Plains Road blocks are, I want to say, at least a half a train stop each block. So he ran from White Plains Road down Britain Street all the way and cut all the way back up Olinville, which would have been impossible for me to run. This was all told by my surgeon. Um, because of Sabine Jansen, Oscar Michelin, and Jeffrey Deskovich, they were able to locate um, my surgeon who did the miraculous job he did. I smile and I laugh because I'm amazed by what he said at the hearing itself on how it would have been totally impossible for me to commit this crime. It should also be known that the individuals who were shot said that the culprit was running fast behind them. He had a mask on. Their identifications differed as far as clothing, the ski mask that he had on. One complaining witness said it had eye holes. Another complaining witness said, said he had a handkerchief um, with a tam on his head. Another complaining witness said um, that he had holes and a nose hole. So everybody's identification of the suspect itself deferred. Shonda Tyrell, whose nickname was Bonkers, um, meaning to go crazy, he ran onto, I should say, he ran down White Plains Road at a grocery store, he shot O'Neill Virgo. When he shot O'Neill Virgo, O'Neill Virgo first said he was unable to see anybody. He didn't see a suspect, he didn't see anything. The only thing he knew that bullets was entering his body and he was being shot. He said he looked up as he laid face down and he looked up the street, he was able to see the suspect running after his friend, Sean Nicholson. O'Neill Virgo, as it is told and understood through further investigation, was a drug dealer. During the course of trial, it was led to believe to the jury that these individuals were just school kids having a normal school day, playing Nintendo, and they were just coming home from school. But we understand now today that these were drug dealers in a drug trade. 
with their older brother, Sean Nicholson's older brother, who is Winston Nicholson. We found all this information out through our investigators who showed a court of appeals case that Winston caught that he stabbed somebody and also was in a drug trade. On that day of the crime itself, Winston wasn't around. However, Sean Nicholson, his little brother was. After shooting O'Neill Virgo, Shonda Tyrell Bonkers ran after Sean Nicholson and anybody else he could catch. Courtney Weiss, who was another witness, he indicated that he saw the culprit and suspect with a handkerchief, a black handkerchief on his face that covered his entire mouth and only showed his eyes. He had a tam, a black tam on the top of his head, but he had on, I should say during the course of trial, he said he had on a handkerchief, but through DD5s, he says that he had on a white mask. So everybody's identifications were strange identifications. The two complaining witnesses, O'Neill Virgo and Sean Nicholson. Sean Nicholson, he says that he was able to see my face when he got shot and he turned around and as he looked back, he saw me with a full uncovered face. He then went down to the ground and he didn't know himself as he said it in the record, meaning he was paralyzed and he was unconscious. He's the only victim to date who has identified me, along with one of the witnesses who is Stephanie Telfer. The other complainant witness, O'Neill Virgo, never identified me. Courtney Weiss never identified me as well, which there were altogether four witnesses, two complainant witnesses, and two witnesses in the street who observed it, Stephanie Telfer being one of them. On December 6, 2022, Andre was released after serving 23 years in prison. So how did Andre's legal team, Oscar Michelin and Jeffrey Deskovic, free Andre? We asked one of his attorneys, Jeffrey Deskovic, who himself is an exoneree. Jeffrey was wrongly convicted of a rape and murder when he was just a high school student. If you don't know Jeffrey's story, it's a remarkable one and can be seen in Gia's documentary on Amazon titled Conviction. Yeah, he's not exonerated because the case is not finished. So the conviction was overturned and he was released on a promise to return, which in you know legalese, he, he was released on his own recognizance, ROR. But the Bronx District Attorney has indicated that they're going to appeal the decision to the appellate division. So if we were to lose that appeal, then the conviction would be reinstated and he would be returned back to prison. You know, having said that, we don't think that there's any chance of that happening. I mean, it's clear that if you don't put in medical evidence, which shows that somebody was physically incapable of committing the crime, I mean, that's clearly ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, but look, nonetheless, I mean, he's not exonerated because the criminal case is not is not finished yet the, due to the appeal. But at the same time, you know, we're, we're the defense, we're going to cross appeal, which means we're going to raise issues on appeal also. I mean, we had argued that all of that evidence was enough to that he should have been granted relief on actual innocence grounds. The legal standard is clear and convincing evidence, so we wanted to win on that ground. And our second argument that we raised was newly discovered evidence. You know, certainly, um, you know, the, the, the witnesses, the ballistics, you know, there was a turf war that went on, which was much different than the background that um, one of the victims, O'Neill Virgo, testified uh, to. 
you know, all that was uh, newly decided. We wanted to win on that ground. Judge uh, rejected those two arguments, but granted it on ineffective assistance of counsel. And legally, what that means, what the real life implication of that is, is that we don't win on one of those grounds, which is the whole reason why uh, we're raising those issues in a cross appeal. Then Andre would not be eligible for compensation under New York state law, which means he'd only be able to bring a federal 1983 civil rights claim. And for that, you know, we would have to find a a malicious violation of a constitutional right that led to the wrongful conviction. You know, keeping in mind that the you know the district attorney's office there there I mean they have immunity, so you know it's it has some very real consequences. Ultimately, the final ground on which Andre wins his case is important. You know, we really need to win on actual innocence or newly discovered evidence, and so that Andre could be eligible for compensation under New York state law. Otherwise, he would not be eligible for that. We asked Jeff, under what grounds can the DA's office appeal? We got a slight preview of that when we went into court for the bail hearing, uh, which the judge ultimately released Andre on his own recognizance. There was no bail that was set, but we got a short preview of it. Um, you know, they're saying, the prosecution is saying that the judge got a cert- certain parts of the record in, in, incorrect and that ultimately they're trying to springboard from from that where he got a couple of minor facts wrong. They're trying to say that uh, he misunderstood the record and therefore his decision was erroneous. That's ultimately, you know, that's where they're going with that preview. I mean, and, and they're ultimately going to argue that Andre's trial attorney, Thomas Lee, was not ineffective. I don't think there's any way in in hell that they're going to win with that argument because how is the lawyer not ineffective in not presenting this medical evidence? Many things in this case and every other wrongful conviction I've looked into have so many aspects of it that seem to only be resolved out of sheer luck. In Andre's case, Tamika made the decision to send Andre a birthday card out of the blue. Then Andre's brother happened to run into Jamel, a key witness in the case. And Jamel made the decision to testify on Andre's behalf, even though initially he was apprehensive about it. Without any of these chance encounters, things could have turned out very differently, and Andre could still be wrongfully incarcerated today. Not to mention that after years of wrongful incarceration, it becomes even more difficult to prove innocence as memories fade, people pass away, evidence gets mislocated, and police files can even get lost in the shuffle. Everything is already stacked against you once you are wrongfully convicted, and time passing by only piles onto the problem. Well, I will say this. um, I've always had the faith of God. And in having the faith of God, I understand is he's the one who brought me through this. I would have never been able to make it and It needs to be said that he needs to have the glory because I would have never made it out of prison if it wasn't for him. I would have never been in contact with Oscar Michelin, who is one of the greatest attorneys in New York, exonerating over eight men. I would have never met Jeffrey Deskovic, who was himself a prisoner and overcame the hurdles of hardship and death, and now is a, uh, almost like a politician himself in advocating for the wrongfully convicted and is an attorney. I would have never met Sabine Jansen, you know, who is 
one of my closest friends um, who reinvestigated the crime itself and did a part and wanted to do a podcast on my case or Maggie Freeling, who did a podcast on the case itself. I would have never met any of these people if it wasn't for God. So I want to say that first before the possibility even came into existence that I have to acknowledge these individuals as ambassadors and emissaries of the Most High. When I was released, first of all, I should say this, it was the biggest secret in the prison because these guys are still doing hard time and you still have the potential of a life or death situation. If somebody doesn't like you and they know you're getting out, now they wanna do something to harm you or they wanna do something to jeopardize that. So in accordance with what um, Oscar Michelin and Jeffrey Deskovich told me as well as Tamika, my wife, you don't tell anybody that you're getting out, that your sentence had been vacated. So I had known about my, the vacating of my sentence on that Thursday coming into the weekend. And it was like the biggest joy, but at the same time, the biggest secret. Upon being released, you know, I was walking out with a, a guard and everybody was saying, where are you going? Where are you going? And the officer said, you know, he's the first one that said, he's going home. He's going home. And everybody looked and said, you're going home. And I, I said, yeah, I'm going home. And it's a joke that Jeff and I still have to this day because when I was released, I didn't even have my shoelaces. And I say that because the prisoners want everything you have when you're released because they're saying you don't need it anymore. So even as I was walking down the hallway, one of the guys said to me, you're going home, let me get your shoelaces, man. Because I had um, these fancy um, two-tone blue and white shoelaces in these Reeboks that I had. So they wanted the shoelaces. So when I was released, I had um, my sneakers tongue hanging out, flopping off my feet, walking down the hallway, and Jeff, Oscar Michelin, Tamika, my wife, and Sabine Jansen was there. And it was the greatest feeling because the rain was coming down. It's almost the song, you know, dancing in the rain, because here was these magnificent people there to receive me, but then the blessing of God's rain coming down, which brings growth and prosperity and healing, because we know that these are the qualities of water itself that it is a life sustainer. And here it was, these raindrops were just falling on my head. And I had all these people embracing me and hugging me and laughing with me, and it just felt awesome. Oh, my first night, I should say, at home was different because I hid in a closet. When I, as Tamika and I left the team, my legal team, Jeff, Oscar, and Sabine, we thought, how are we gonna surprise the kids? How, what are we gonna do to surprise the kids? So um, I said, okay, where are the kids? And she said that Andre will be being picked up for basketball practice. I'll pick him up. And then Trinity should be home any minute from work because Trinity's of age 
She was seven when she became my daughter. So I was in a closet and I hid in the closet. She said, okay, stay in the closet. I'm gonna lock the room door and don't make a sound. So I'm in the closet and I hear all of a sudden keys coming in. So I'm like, oh my God, this is Trinity. She's coming from work. So as I hear the keys, I hear her singing, her little eye, her ear pods. I come to learn about all this technology later because I'm a dinosaur, you know, she's a Jetson. And she's singing and humming and doing her little thing on the bottom of the house. And I'm like this in a corner, like, oh my God, will she hear me? I'm so nervous. And she comes upstairs and I'm like, oh no. Will she come into our room? I don't know their routines. I don't know what they're doing. And I have the room door closed. She doesn't even bother to come into our room. And she goes into her room. And now I hear my wife with her keys and I hear my son and they're talking, coming in. So as she now opens the door, they're coming upstairs. She says, Andre, I have, because my son is named Andre Jr. Um, she says, Andre, I have a surprise for you. I brought something from New York for you. And he said, what do you, what do you mean? What do you got for me? So she said, okay, come upstairs. And she says, Trinity, listen, I brought something from New York for AJ. I want you to see when he gets it, it's gonna be really good. So when she come, when I come out of the closet, oh my goodness. She looks like she saw a ghost. She can't believe that it's me. My son is jumping. We have the video. Um, he's jumping, 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 jumping. But as he's jumping, the next question that he asks startles me and my wife. He says, does he have to go back? Does he have to go back? And my wife said, no, he doesn't have to go back. He's here now for good. And he runs and he hugs me and I hug my daughter and then we just have a good time talking and laughing and I'm finally on a, a mattress, you know, a real mattress that I can actually be comfortable. And I'm able to have no restrictions because some of those restrictions is when you're told to breathe fresh air. You're told when you can go for recreation because you don't have a window in these cells. So every time you go out for recreation, you get fresh air. And that fresh air itself means everything. So when it's taken away from you and you get these restrictions, now you understand how priceless freedom is. So just one of the things that I did while we were talking on the bed was I went to the window and I opened it up just so that I could breathe the fresh air and understand that this is a different space and a different quality of life. It's far easier to wrongfully convict an innocent person than to undo that conviction. It's far, far more difficult to right that wrong. And Andre still has a long road ahead of him. The DA's office is going to appeal. Andre wants to attend college and become a lawyer, but he doesn't have the funds to do so at this time. If you'd like to support Andre, you can do so through his GoFundMe page at www.gofundme.com forward slash F forward slash support Andre Brown. We will also share the link on our social media pages. Any support, big or small, will go a long way in helping Andre get his life back on track. 
The first time I met Andre, he had only been out of prison for 13 days. We were both at the unveiling of the Gate of the Exonerated, an entrance to Central Park in Harlem on 110th Street between 5th Avenue and Malcolm X Boulevard, the exact same entrance the Central Park Five walked through as teenagers the night of the brutal 1982 attack that they were wrongfully convicted of. It was a cold New York day in December, the coldest day we'd had in weeks. The unveiling of the gate took much longer than anticipated. It went on for hours past the time it was scheduled to end, and everyone was freezing. When the speeches finally did end, I walked up to Jeff to say hi, and we both complained about how cold and frigid we were, and to be honest, quite annoyed too. At that moment, Jeff introduced me to Andre, and with a charming, huge smile on his face, one of the first things he said was, What are you talking about? It's a beautiful day. The sun is shining. We are here at the Gate of the Exonerated. And he went on for a little bit with this positive mindset. It immediately made me feel bad for my poor attitude. And then my second thought was, Who is this guy? And why is he so happy? When Jeff told me that Andre had just been released from prison less than two weeks ago, I simply couldn't believe it. But time and time again, I meet exonerees, and one thing stands out. They truly understand the meaning of life and what's important and what's not. It's one of the many things I most appreciate about them. Andre is incredibly intelligent. He's educated. He's gentle. He has a great grasp on on life, and that clearly comes through when you speak with him. So, you know... I could never envision him attempting to murder two people. I, I, I could not envision that. So I just want to mention that. You know, yeah, and that, you and me that, both, Jeff. I agree 100%. Yeah, and it just maybe one other point I'll make is that it was just so surreal to me to go from visiting with Andre in Eastern Correctional Facility uh, with Oscar Michelin on legal visits to go from that and take and collect calls from him to, you know, Meeting him outside the prison, going for that first meal, visiting with him, going to advocacy events on the outside, getting cell phone calls from him. My phone is ringing and I'm thinking, who the heck is this? Oh, it says Andre Brown. And, you know, and just the quick smile that, 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 that comes over me. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. And I want to add that Andre is planning to follow the same tradition of me insofar as he aspires to uh, be a lawyer. So he aspires to get a bachelor's degree and, and become a lawyer and help to free other wrongfully convicted people. I've already seen evidence of his commitment to that in the form of him coming with me to various uh, anti-wrongful conviction events. You know, and it's, it's nice to be alongside another advocate you know, reinforcing me, adding his voice. At the same time, knowing that there is that special connection between him and I, not just as two people who were wrongfully imprisoned, who are now dedicated to making a change and participating in the movement and, and, and then in being friends, but beyond that, to know that I, I was and still am his, his attorney. We're still also attorney and client on top of that. And man, there's... There's really no words for that, Gia. If you're interested in this story and you want to know more about the case, 
you can check out our social media pages. We will be sharing photos and more information from the case. We are at Speaking of Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and at Crime Speaking on Twitter.